let's ask God's blessing on our reading. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for uh, the living word of God. We have already sung and prayed about how in your word we find grace beyond deserving. And now as we read about redeeming love through the pages of the Gospel of Matthew, we pray that you would minister the joy and the comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. In your name we pray. Amen. Our, our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, and I'll be reading from the first chapter, chapter 1, and I will read verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiod, and Abiod, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon 
to the Christ 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. When I was about 10 years old, I was eavesdropping on what I knew to be a very serious family conversation. Uh, My relatives were discussing the first divorce in our immediate family. Or it, it was at least the first divorce I had heard about in my lifetime. I, th- I think I was about 10 years old. Uh, someone in the family had been caught in flagranto delicto, caught red-handed, and I didn't even understand all the words the grown-ups were using, and I couldn't even begin to wrap my young head around what was actually happening, but later I understood that the circumstances were painful and wicked. I'd be embarrassed to share the details of that circumstance with you today. Now, the ensuing breakup of the marriage brought misery and tragedy, as you might imagine, to our family. Now, all of this happened long before the invention of Photoshop. Now, back then, if you wanted to modify a picture, a pair of household scissors would have to do the trick. And that morning, this became a real question. He is in all the pictures on every mantelpiece in every home. He is in every picture. We shall cut him out. Get the scissors out. We are going to cut him out. Cut some matting to size or pick a different frame, but he is no longer going to be in our family picture. Now, I I now know uh, that that was neither the the first nor the last tragedy in our family, and I imagine that your family has probably seen your share, your fair share of that as well. You, You know about broken hearts, you know about broken homes. Uh, You know the misery. And every family has stories like this, but most of us don't really talk about them all that much. We actually prefer not to air our dirty laundry. It's not like we are going to fill our end-of-the-year Christmas family letter with detailed account of every controversy we've been embroiled in, every firing, every hardship, every school we applied to but didn't get in, every addiction that we've had and we can't seem to shake. Those are not going to make it in the letter. It's not like we're going to put bumper stickers on the back of our Honda minivan saying, our family is a train wreck. This is, this is partly what makes the reading of Matthew's genealogy so puzzling. Nothing has been photoshopped. No one has been cut out. Nothing has been edited. No one has taken the scissors to this picture. It's all here. The genealogy is the history of the people of Israel. And this is not the sanitized version. This is not the G-rated version. Now, I chose this text this morning to provide a little bit of family background to Ruth, because I know that you've been reading Ruth all summer long. Now, I I know that as I read this, some of you are wondering, 
What could possibly be edifying about what seems to be an entry from the white pages of a foreign country? At first glance, this is about as as interesting as having family devotions with the church directory. My, my, my grandfather was a, was a minister, and, and he used to say, Tim, all of the scriptures are God's inspired word, and some parts are more inspiring than others. <laughs> if we would have had a shot at editing this genealogy, I'm wondering if we would have rearranged the material a little bit. It's not exactly going to get honorable mention on the American Book Review for 100 Best Lines of Novels Ever Written. Also, Matthew doesn't jump into the action the way the Gospel of Mark do. Right smack dab in Jesus' life is the way Mark starts. And Matthew doesn't wax eloquent about the eternal beginnings of the Son of God the way John does. Matthew begins with the begats. But there's actually more here than meets the eye. If you, if you look at me, with me at verse 1, you can actually tell there's something important happening. It, it reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, literally, in, in Greek it actually says, the, the book of the genesis of Jesus. So here we are at the beginning of a New Testament, at the beginning of a new library of books, a new beginning, and the story hints at the genesis of Jesus. And just as the the Old Testament book of Genesis is an account of the history of the creation of the world, Matthew begins the account with another creation story. Not the creation of the physical world, but the story of how this same God of all creation is now going to renew all creation through his Son in the power of the Spirit. Remember how in Genesis 1, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the heavens and the earth, and the entire story chronicles the ups and downs of life the tragedies and miseries of human sinfulness and unbelief. And Matthew also begins his genesis of Jesus with the story of tragedy and turmoil. I don't know if you noticed this, but the one thing that is repeated no less than four times is the reminder that Israel used to be in Babylon, in exile, deportation, Look in verse 11, at the time of the deportation of Babylon. Again, it's repeated in verse 12. And again in verse 17, the deportation to Babylon, to Christ. Fourteen generations. That is how Matthew marks time. Now we might say, it's been 70 some years since the Holocaust. Or it's been five years since dad died. It's been 14 generations since the exile. That's how they tell time. And this is a a heads up to the reader saying, don't you dare forget your history. Remember Israel's idolatry. Remember their unbelief and remember where it took them. Remember that their unbelief landed them in Babylon, that they were stuck in a moment that they could not get out of. They were desperate for help and for someone to rescue 
And Matthew begins the genesis of Jesus to show that this is, in fact, the story, the account of the continuation of God's redeeming work. In the, in the subtlest way, in the first verse alone, Jesus Christ, the account, the new genesis, it shows us that Jesus is the new creation. Jesus is the new and faithful Israel. Jesus is the one to lead his people out of the exodus. Jesus is the one to bring them home. Now, if you, if you take a look at this list, I don't know about you, but I, I'm fascinated by who makes the list and who doesn't. Now, look, look at it for a moment. I have to say that at the time, it would have been very unusual for women to be featured so prominently in a family history. But what's even stranger here, that there is no mention of the matriarchs. The usual suspects aren't here. There is no mention of Sarah. There is no sign of Rachel. She doesn't make the list. And where's, where's, where's Leah? And, and how come Rebecca has not been included? Now, we, we do have Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and the wife of Uriah, who's actually not given a personal name here, but that is Bathsheba, lest you forget. So, so no Sarah, but Tamar makes the list. Way to go, Matthew. Look in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, so in, in Ruth's immediate lineage is Tamar. And I, it's such polite company in college church. I'm almost embarrassed to show this chapter of the genesis of Jesus. Because if you have any Christian sensibilities, they are about to be offended. Do, do you want me to remind you? How, how is it that, that Tamar ends up giving birth to Perez and Zerah? If, if, if I have to remind you, Tamar is actually Judah's daughter-in-law. Her first husband, Ur, Judah's firstborn, is killed by God because he was wicked and disobedient. And he left Tamar, his wife, childless. Her second husband, Onan, took matters into his own hands, spilling his seed all over the ground. Again, no babies. The story makes us blush, I know. Onan is judged too, and he dies. And Tamar is, is, is 0 for 2 in trying to find a solid husband who will provide some offspring. So what, so what does Tamar decide to do? She, she wants to see the fulfillment of God's promise. So she decides that she is going to play dress up. She pretends to be a prostitute. Seemingly unconcerned with whether or not this is a sin, she disguises herself. She descends into the depths of depravity, and for as long as the promise of God is going to be fulfilled, she does not pretend to be holy. She pretends to be a whore and a harlot. Now, without thinking about whether or not this was right or wrong, moral or immoral, regardless of what people are going to say and think about her, this doubly barren widow 
disowns herself and gives up her body just for the sake of offspring. She pulls a trick. And Judah somehow, her father-in-law, somehow ends up visiting her. And he gets the wool pulled over his eyes and does not know that he's having relations with his daughter-in-law. She gets pregnant. Three months later, Tamar is accused of prostitution on account of her pregnancy. And get this, Judah, the biological father, actually wants her to be burned to death. But in an iconic iconic coup de grace, uh, she produces the personal belongings, the staff, the seal, the cord that she had finessed from Judah when he was with her. Well, you know how the story goes. There's a baby. His name is Perez. We find out from history's account that his name means the one who breaks through. How fitting. Some translations prefer to render his name as meaning the eruption. Perez. Perez is identified in chapter 4 of the book of Ruth as the the ancestor of King David. (laughs) I don't know about you, you. What do you make of that? The ancestor of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, a child of whoredom and deception. In chapter 4, verse 12 of Ruth, this child... Perez, the eruption, is actually called a gift from God. Now, this, this, this story leaves us wondering, is, is this child, is this Perez, is the eruption the child of harlotry and deception, or is he perhaps the child of desperate faith and clinging to God? Well, Matthew 1 is a fleshy family history. There are skeletons in the closet, and we are told sordid affair after sordid affair. This is the genesis of Jesus. Do do you want me to go on? I'm not sure if you do. I'm not sure if you can stomach more. Let's go on. Verse 5 tells us of Salmon, the father of Boaz by, here we go again, Rahab the harlot of Jericho. So So it seems like Rahab would then end up being Ruth's mother-in-law, but you have to remember these biblical genealogies sometimes skip a generation or two. So either way, it's possible that she's either the mother-in-law or she's the the grandmother or maybe even the great-grandmother. Either way, in Midrash, uh, Rahab is named as one of the, the four most beautiful women to ever live along with Sarah and Abigail and Esther. The, uh, in the Babylonian Talmud, anyone who mentions the name of Rahab immediately lusts after her. Even the mention of her name would be too much for some. Now, through the centuries, commentators have done their level best to suggest that Rahab was the hostess of the mostess as an, at an Airbnb. That she ran a bed and breakfast. But the text is clear. She was a woman who sold the use of her body. And when this is how you make a living, either today or back then, but certainly back then it would have been unimaginable. You were a second class citizen. 
You were disposable and despicable, used and uh, abused, ready to be thrown away. But now you remember the story. Rahab and her family are the only survivors of Israel's conquest of Jericho because she hid the Jewish spies who had come to her for help. Remember how the king's emissaries show up at her house wondering where the men are, and she, she does what she's been doing all her life. She tells men something they want to hear. She tricks them. Yes, the men came to me, but I can't remember which way they were going, and it was kind of dark. And the story ends. The story of the Canaanite prostitute ends with her saying in Joshua chapter 2, 11, for the Lord your God is heaven above and on the earth below. Somehow the Canaanite prostitute recognizes that God, the God of Israel, is the supreme God. Now here's what's interesting. I wish we had time to dig into this a little bit more, but in, in Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 31, we read this. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Can you you believe this? Her, Her act of deception was considered an act of faith, an act of obedient trust in God. Even while she is gainfully employed as a prostitute, she lives in obedient trust to Almighty God. Now, as an aside, this gets really interesting. So Hebrews essentially says that Rahab is justified by faith. But what's interesting is what the book of James says about Rahab. Go figure. In the same way, was not Rahab also a prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So a little confused. So Hebrews says she's justified by faith. James says, of course, she is justified by works. Well, which, which is it? Well, the scripture's answer is yes, it is. Indeed. Because true faith, justifying faith, and saving faith is always obedient trust expressed in action. You've already seen uh, this same obedient trust in action in the life of Ruth. Ruth from Moab, part of the genesis of Jesus. The Moabites had their ancestral origins because of Lot and his daughter. Polytheistic pagan Moabites, Chemos worshiping Moabites. And there is Ruth and Ruth. Ruth trusts God. Ruth leaves everything behind for the sake of the promise to obtain the blessing. She says no to the promise of security of Moab. She leaves the high probability of marriage in Moab behind because she trusts the outcome of her life to God. She goes to Bethlehem, the house, the house of bread, even though there is no bread in Bethlehem, remember? Because she trusts God. She clings to God. What a story. This is the genesis of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, sinners, declared righteous through faith. Now now notice something else. We didn't 
read quite this far in the gospel. But if you look in verse 18, you see that Mary is mentioned and the circumstances of the birth of Jesus now all seem eerily familiar. See, Mary is pregnant, but Mary's not married. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. The order is all wrong. You're supposed to get married first and then have babies. Everybody knows that. And the birth of Jesus is shrouded in controversy. Joseph and Mary's fornication would be the talk of town, I'm sure. They try to finagle a a quick divorce or an elopement just to save face. Now, of course, Matthew could have left the entire episode of Mary's pregnancy out of these pages just for the sake of propriety, but he decides to leave it in. And I think I know why. See, Matthew, or Levi, as he's sometimes called, is a tax collector. Tax collectors are traitors. They are They are Jews who are working for the Romans who are taking and extorting money from their fellow Jews. Few people are hated as much. Few people are considered unrighteous as much as the tax collectors, and Matthew is one of them. Later on in chapter 9, Jesus is criticized for hobnobbing with the tax collectors. They despise him for it. How can he do this? And Jesus' response is, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. (laughs) That's why Matthew includes it in the gospel. There's no way he is going to let that out. There is no way that he is not going to include Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba. Because there they are, the Canaanite Rahab, the Canaanite, Ruth, the Moabite, and Bathsheba, married to a Hittite. This is the genesis of Jesus. And all along, this is the point, all along, Jesus has been calling the nations to come. All along, he has been justifying sinners. All along, we see that salvation is not for the prim and the proper. It is not for Jews only. It is not for people who come with a perfect track record. Salvation is not based on pedigree. It is not based on ethnicity. God calls not the righteous. He calls sinners, and then he calls them righteous. Speaking of sinners, have you you heard that Snoop Dogg recently came out with a gospel album? I don't know if Snoop Dogg has ever been brought up at college church. (laughs) I certainly don't want to set a precedent. (laughs) I don't don't know what you recall about rap artist and media mogul Snoop Dogg, whose birth name is Calvin Brodus. Uh, Maybe there's a, a praying grandmother somewhere there. His is a sordid story of crime and sexual exploitation. Snoop was a dog who brags about being a pimp even when he was married. Then he joined the Nation of Islam, then he became a Rastafarian, then he won four Adult Industry Awards movies for his work with Hustler. He settled lawsuits with underage girls for giving them alcohol and ecstasy. His track record is is wicked in every way. And then earlier this year, he comes out with a gospel album. I know, 
You're skeptical. So am I. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know. I didn't know if it was for real or for play or for, for mockery or for money. So I decided to, to read some of the, the lyrics. I was still a little bit nervous to look for the, the music video. So I just thought, let me just look at the lyrics. Here is lyrics from his song, New Wave. A change for the better. I'm reading your letter. There's love on these pages. There's love for the ages. Right, wrong, same song. Your grace still sufficient. No shame, we admit it. Your way's a higher way. <laughs> Wait, there's, there's love on these pages? There's love for the ages? Could it be that we have hymnody from Calvin Brodus? Can you, can you imagine? Can you just imagine sufficient grace for Calvin Brodus? Love for the ages for the pornographer? Can you imagine in the next edition of your pew hymnal song and lyrics by Calvin Brodus? No, you can't. Coming to a church near you. Sinners declared righteous. It is unthinkable. In fact, it almost sounds immoral. And whether he is for real, I don't know. Whether he recognizes his sin and genuinely repents of it, I don't know. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is for sinful Calvin every bit as much as for you and for me. I love the lyrics of the hymn we started our worship service with this morning. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is, he is willing, doubt no more. Come, Ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall, if you tarry till you're better, you won't come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Normally, when, uh, when we read the genealogy of Matthew, it's during uh, Advent and Christmas, and uh, before coming to Wheaton, I'd been a pastor in the Netherlands for seven years, and I felt the strangeness of the gospel most during Christmas and Easter. See, our, our church would often be filled with people who would come to watch an English-language Christmas service, and often most of the people in our church were not part of our church. They were not followers of Jesus. They were sympathetic to the church, but their expectation was that I, as the pastor, would offer something insightful about current thoughts and trends, maybe something helpful about how to raise children, you know, something edifying. You know, God is nice. Be nice. Isn't that nice? Something like that. <laughs> and then with all those expectations, I would start reading the begats. 
And people would give me that look, that, that look of incredulity, that look of what in the world is this? And then I would explain how Jesus Christ is, in fact, the eternal Son of God. And it all sounds like a vast joke. It sounds like divine comedy. But you can't get around the fact that the birth of Jesus, the genesis of Jesus, involves a miracle. Because somehow this Jesus Christ becomes a human person. He is flesh like you and I. And he dwelt among us. And he became sin. And the genesis of Jesus Christ is that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and the blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature, so that he might become David's true descendant, Ruth's true descendant, like his brothers and sisters in every way, except sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He is, he is now of our flesh. He understands. He knows what it is like. And he is our mediator. And it is with his holiness and his innocence that he covers not only the sinfulness of Rahab and Tamar and Ruth, but yours and mine. And it's a miracle. Uh, C.S. Lewis was once asked if it was, if it was at all possible to rid Christianity from all supernatural and miraculous elements. And here's how he answers it. He says, the, the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, which is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe and rose again, bringing nature up with him. And it is precisely this miracle that is the genesis of Jesus. Oh, let all mortal flesh be silent. Let them come with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded. Oh, there is no earthly design, no, no human design. No stories of good people getting better. Your pastors have been reminding you all summer long that the story in Ruth and Naomi isn't so much the, a call to imitate their resilience or their gritty toughness, but the story is told so that you know that on every page of their sad lives, with all of the setbacks and all of the death, and all of the surprises and all of God's strange designs, they discover that God has been working all the time. And in the same way that this gospel begins and ends with Emmanuel, God with us, Ruth and Naomi discovered that Jesus has been there all along, justifying sinners, providing for bread, making sure that everything was going according to plan. Because the genesis of faith says from generation, two times seven, two times seven, two times seven, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, everything going exactly according to plan. God has been rescuing people, nothing lacking, everything accounted for 
This is the mysterious work of God. So whatever setback you are facing, whatever train wreck you're in the middle of, whatever heartache, whatever divorce, whatever family, how odd or how unusual, or whoever you want to cut out of the picture, or maybe you are the person that they want to have cut out of the picture. We know this. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin, and he is Emmanuel, and he will be with us even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we can, we can almost not believe this. Rahab and Tamar, Ruth and Bathsheba, Calvin Brodus and College Church. Lord, we pray that the comfort of the presence of the living Lord Jesus Christ would be ours in full and new measure, in new ways. Lord, we long to ponder anew what you will do. And we see that all our desires have been granted by what you ordain. This was so true for Ruth, and it's so true for us today. We give you thanks in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.